And welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we have author Mary Harrington with us to discuss her new book, Feminism Against Progress, in which she makes the case that modern feminism increasingly benefits only a small class of professional women. We'll not only impact the premise of that, but also detail how the digital, digital age has changed life for women. Is technology really helping us or is it erasing natural limits and sex differences? Mary Harrington is a self-described reactionary feminist, and again, she is the author of the new book, Feminism Against Progress, which comes out April 25th. You can find it on Amazon or any other place you buy your books. And a little bit more information, she is a contributing editor at Unheard and writes a weekly substack called Reactionary Feminists on Culture and Politics and the Cyborg Era, and it is such a pleasure to have you on She Thinks Today, Mary. Thank you for joining us, especially since it's very late there in the UK. So we, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Um, The first question I have for you is for you to define the term reactionary feminist for us. This is how you define yourself. What do you mean by that? Uh, Do you know, it started as a joke. It started as a signal scrambler. Um, Well, actually, it started as a long running argument with a great friend who who (laughs) I I used to call myself a post-liberal feminist. And he he slid into my DMs one day to say, Post-liberal doesn't mean anything. It has no content. You should call yourself a reactionary. We had a, we had a huge long argument about it. And in the end, I, I, I conceded. I, I was like, okay, you win. But I didn't tell him that. I just changed my Twitter bio to reactionary feminist um, just to see how long it would take him to notice. I think it took about three days. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, after that, first things wrote to me to say, reactionary feminist, that's kind of interesting. What do you mean by that? Would you like to write something? And then I had to figure out what I meant by it. <laughs> and so what did you come so up was, with? What do you mean by so, it? So, other so, than, so what, other what, than... Do I, what do I mean by it? <laughs> it's very simply, very simply, it's, it's the long, the, the short version of it is it's what a feminist looks like if you don't believe in progress. Um, it's what it looks like if you still think women's interests sometimes need defending as distinct from those of men, hmm. but you don't believe in progress and you don't believe in the progressive program which I guess is where I found myself. Uh, Having experimented at length with the progressive program in my own personal life, I came to the conclusion that it was not all, it was not delivering for me, certainly. And I don't think it's delivering for the world generally. Um, But if I don't believe in progress and I don't believe in the progressive program, does that mean I'm not allowed to be a feminist? And I was like, no, this doesn't work because I still care about women's interests. And I still think they need defending as distinct from men's sometimes. Um, so, So what does it look like to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress? And and the the very long answer to that question is the book, which I just yeah. which is yeah. which comes out next week. And there's so much to but unpack. But in, in, in the it. very short term, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, one of the things I just want to unpack a little bit with that term, that reactionary feminist, is I I do think that a lot of women find themselves in the position that you found yourself in, which is, well, I'm thankful that we do have equal rights in many areas that, especially for single women, that I can provide for myself, that I don't necessarily have to be married in order to provide. But that doesn't mean I dislike men or don't want to get married or don't want to have kids. And so I, I think there are a lot of women who fit into this camp. IWF, of course, is a reflection of that, that women can be many things. You don't have to be just this box that feminists want to put you in. And so I was hope you could unpack a little bit your journey. You just mentioned it there that you had a change of mind because you didn't fit this mold. What, when did you first call yourself a feminist and how did the change happen? Well, I I guess I'd always really, I've, I've read feminist theory since I was in my early teens Actually, I, the, I told the story in the book, and this is a it was a, a real moment for me. 
when I, I, I sort of got to my, I suppose, to my early teens and I realized that every day when we sat down for a meal, my mum would set the table and we'd all eat. And then my dad would get up and just leave the table and leave the dishes on the table for her to clear up. And after a, after a certain age, I noticed that my brothers would get up and leave the table and leave her to clear up their dishes as well. And I remember really wrestling with the dilemma of what I should do. Because on the one hand, I felt I felt that I should show it, this. This seemed unfair to me that she should be take, clearing up the dishes, having having done everything else. Um, and I felt I should show solidarity and support. But then I thought, if if I, implicitly the statement that my brother and my my brothers and my dad were making were this is beneath me, or this is this is just not yeah we're not I'm, we're not required to do this simple chore in the house. And and given that I felt that my status ought to be equal to theirs in the house, ought I not to get up and leave the table and leave the dishes for my mum to clear up? But then if I did that, then what did that say about what my role would be like when I when I reached when if I if and when I ever became a mother myself? And what did that say about what how how I saw women and and what what did that imply about how I would then perceive myself? And it was a really thorny dilemma, and it's the kind of thing that a tortured teenager. Um, is is going to spend a lot of time ruminating over, especially if you're a, a ruminator like I am. And that that was, but but that was that was the dilemma. This, which I still don't really have an answer to, um, which which started my lifelong interest in feminism and started me reading feminist theory. You know, I, I got hold of somewhere in a secondhand bookshop a copy of The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir and read that in my room and sort of got angrier and angrier. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I'm at a point now where I, I question a number of, and I, I question a great deal of what Simone de Beauvoir said and thought, and I've argued against her at a few points in the book. But, but, but it was my entry point into a whole, a whole field of, of women who'd, who'd done their best to think and wrestle with these questions. You know, some of which really don't have very easy answers. Um, and, and how did I, how did I fall off the wagon with liberal feminism? The, probably the central precipitating I mean the, it's a very long story but the the thing that really pushed me off the wagon for good was having a baby and realizing that the, the liberal atomized ideal subject is just not compatible with being a mum to a baby because you're not you don't want to be atomized when you have a small child to look after you you're not you know you grow you grow a child in your actual entrails and they'll they're not quite a separate person to you for a very long time and then they're born and it's and they still don't feel very completely separate to you. I mean, I, I used to routinely wake up in the night just before my daughter woke up needing a feed, and I don't know how I knew. I just did. You know, I call it the mum Bluetooth. I know I know mums who 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 have a breastfeeding mums who who would experience a milk letdown even if they were several miles away from their hungry child. And I don't know how that works, but it's a recognised phenomenon. You know, there are there are all sorts of in very subtle um, interconnections between a mother and a baby, which just give the lie to the sort of Rousseau-esque fantasy that we can that, that we that we're separate by default and and the the only connections or obligations or bonds that we should feel obliged to embrace are the ones that we've chosen. That's that's just simply that that doesn't compute if you're if you're a mum. It just it makes no sense at all. And then I and then I I sort of and that left me having to re-examine my entire philosophical paradigm. Uh, yeah as you can see I, I I get stuck with having to think things all the way through. Sure. And I was thinking, well, you know, does does this mean that does this mean that I should I have to agree with Rousseau that women just need to be excluded altogether from the ideal liberal subject? Because he really did say the quiet part out loud. He was just like, yeah, no, men can do all of men men can be all of this stuff. Women should just be compliant, charming, support humans who bear the babies and raise the children. And apart from that, they just don't they don't get to play. Um, and he's kind of right. Um, if your if your paradigm for what a person should be 
is radically atomized by default and only only accepts bonds and obligations on an opt-in basis, then that that categorically excludes mothers, except to the extent that they're wishing that ex- it, it excludes women, except to the extent that we're willing to suppress our distinctive female reproductive role. Mm. Um, so, and and that that really is the entry point into a critique I hear often from the right about the feminist movement, which says, oh, they oh, oh feminists just want women to be more like men. And it's kind of true, you know. If you if you if you're drinking the Rousseauesque liberal Kool Aid, then it has to be because there's no other way. There's no other way to be that other than just to to erase or abolish or otherwise minimize your reproductive role. Um, I, I dissent from that. I, I, I sat and thought about all of this, and I thought, well, I'm either going to have to abandon liberalism or I'm going to have to abandon feminism because obviously the the two don't really work together. At least not if I want to be a mum. And I've been I. I I think of, of the two, I think I'd prefer to retain feminism. I just have to, I just have to rethink what it means to be a feminist if I'm if I'm rejecting the liberal paradigm for what people are and how people can flourish. And yeah. so, and so I said about thinking thinking through what the, what that what that could look like, and came and landed somewhere I guess much more realist about 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 who who and what we are as humans in an embodied way and in a, in our distinctively dimorphic. Um, ways as men and women. And there's so much that that feeds into this these days because it's also what we're dealing with with the transgender issue. And you will hear a man who identifies as a female saying that they they can have kids too, or men can have or trans trans women can have kids as well, even though it's a biological man. And I think that this idea of childbearing obviously is so intrinsically tied to women. And I would think that most feminists would be offended and upset by this. Are you surprised the feminist movement, so-called modern feminist movement, hasn't spoken out more against what we see in the trans movement? Well, what I what I would emphasize at this point is that the situation is quite different in America to what it is in the United Kingdom, where the pushback against gender ideology has come loud and clear from a fairly well-established network of radical feminists. Who, who have been at the forefront of pushing back. And I think, I, I don't understand why America doesn't really, doesn't seem to have radical feminists like the British ones, but but the, the situation just seems to be different. Um, and the the mode of feminism, which, see, which appears from my observation to predominate in the United States, seems to be very, very much one which is fully on board with the liberal paradigm and the liberal project of individual emancipation at all costs and in all areas, including including from all of the constraints of our bodies. And in Feminism Against Progress, I've, I've set out, well, I've drawn a straight line from the, the origin point of entry of, of, the, of the, the point at which that strand of feminism became dominant, which was in the 1960s during the sexual revolution. And I've, I've set out to show that really there was a much more, there was much more of a back and forth between what I suppose we could call sex realist feminists who wanted to defend women as mothers and women as embodied sexed creatures and, you know, to, to assert our equal dignity and standing with men in, 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 in positive relationships, you know, the, 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 the equal dignity of both, but not necessarily the, the identical behavior and preferences and inclinations of both are more, and 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 in, and in particular asserted the importance of 
areas of activity which had historically always been female, you know, the, the sphere of the domestic you know, and the, the importance of motherhood and so on and so forth. Um, and and this this is this is very much you know today that doesn't read as feminism it reads you know the modern feminist historiographers will tell you that that's a kind of that that was just patriarchal false, false consciousness and these women were just were just pumping out propaganda for for for, for male supremacy um, but but the, but this is just not true in the in the context of where they were um, and in in their historical context they were straightforwardly making feminist arguments in defence of of motherhood and under the under the circumstances of the industrial revolution. But what changed, and and the re- the reason the, and on the other side of the ledger, we you 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 saw the feminists of freedom who are saying, well, the, you know, being being a mum and being a woman is all very well, but but I I want to I want to go and get a job, and I don't want people to treat me differently in that because I'm female rather than male, and so these these were women who were, who were making the who were making the, under the circumstances equally justified case for women's entry into the market on the same terms as men. And and both of these, both of them had a, had a measure of justice, and both of them had had good cause to make the arguments that they did. And between them, they made for a very rich political argument, which which formed it was women's specific response to to the way life changed um, over the course of the industrial revolution. But in my view, the sexual revolution was not the beginning of feminism; it was the end of that feminism. It killed that feminism stone dead because the feminists in this during the sexual revolution, the feminism of freedom won. It won the argument where previously there'd been a back and forth between the the women who wanted to defend women as mothers and as as our distinctive embodied selves, the feminists of freedom who just wanted all people to be interchangeably, indistinguishably human, um, were the ones who won the battle, and they did so via another technological change, which was the arrival of legal birth control and 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 subsequently of abortion, and I mean it's. People of good faith differ on on the the rights and wrongs of legal abortion, but I think wherever you stand on fetal personhood and so on, it's difficult to disagree that it's it's about the most it's about the strongest statement you could make in favour of freedom over your obligation to to a dependent other to say my freedom is so important that I can I can choose to sacrifice a life that depends utterly on my physical body. In order to defend that freedom, and and really, and I've drawn from from Erica Bakayoki, who who wrote a wonderful book about about the the legal history of of the of of how, how we got to that point, um, the rights of women, um, reclaiming a lost legacy, and she she makes the case for for a, for a lost feminism, um, and I've I've drawn from her argument really that. that, that to make the point that this this was this was where one vision of feminism comprehensively triumphed over over the other, um, and and when 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 the right in particular um, critiques feminism, what they're talking about is the feminism of freedom, mm-hmm. and and mo- mostly the feminism of the feminism of care, the feminism of motherhood, and, se- and sex realism has just been memory hold, or it's been cancelled, you know, it, it it just doesn't exist anymore in the in the history books, and it's not it's not even taught, and so you know, I wanna, these these things just don't read yeah. as women. And ask something about that, because I, I think you make an important distinction, because I think most women would say that there have been many positive changes for women in the past decades when it comes to, let's say, work, the ability to work, um, to be treated equally in the workplace, let's say. But where feminism went wrong was to say that men and women are exactly the same and that there are no differences whatsoever. And the women who embrace that this freedom to, to try to free themselves with with what makes them uniquely female, the ability to have children, 
was in many ways a huge cost and a huge trade-off because you can't have freedom. You talk about this in the book. You can't have freedom without some type of element that you're trading off. I want to talk a little bit more about that freedom. I'm sure women, many women still think and, and did think at that time that birth control was great because it didn't tie them to having children without a man that was going to help them. In your opinion, how has the pill been something that has brought a trade-off that hasn't benefited women? Well, it's this is a very incredibly complicated picture yeah. uh, because it's it's indisputably the case that the, the pill brought a huge dividend of freedom, as you said. You know, certainly for for ambitious ambitious middle class women who who, who had who had visions of what they wanted to do with their lives being able to control fertility was obviously a huge plus. And with the arrival of the pill, you see women entering universities and pursuing higher education and suddenly burgeoning numbers. You see women entering the workplace. You see women, because straightforwardly, those women who who, who wanted to pursue activities of motherhood were suddenly in a position where they could plan, uh, which just wasn't the case before. You know, you, you either had to be extraordinarily self-disciplined or you had to be willing to to abandon whatever it was you were doing at the drop of a hat um, because because you'd become pregnant and then you you had the were there were obligations attendant on that and so on. Um and and so so there were there was a huge amount of freedom that came with the arrival of the pill. But the the difficulty is that is is everything else well, is everything else that came with the pill and in particular in, in particular what what came with that freedom was was the the entry of commerce into new areas where it had it, it had just simply simply not been allowed to tread before so that was, just to give you to give you to, to see if i can illustrate this a little bit more um if you on you know, Previous, prior to the pill, um, sexuality, women's sexuality had not been women's private business. It was just wasn't thinkable to imagine that my my body was was purely my own business. Because if there's a meaningful risk of pregnancy, then everybody around me really does have skin in the game in who I have sex with. Um, it, because otherwise, everybody else in my village or my small town or in my community is going to have to decide what happens to the baby. So. In, inevitably, under those circumstances, you end up with an immensely complex moral code that manages human sexuality and that's particularly stringent in the way it controls women's sexuality because women are the ones with, with the material risk of getting pregnant. Um, when the pill came along, all of that all of that disappeared. Not quite overnight. It took a it took a couple of decades to to disappear substantially, but 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 in effect, what that it became thinkable for the first time. That what that that my who I chose to have sex with really was my business and nobody else's, and in a way that just wasn't imaginable for women before. But the thing about the the thing about some, my body being only mine and nobody else having a stake in in what I do with it is that if I own something, I can do what I like with it, and, and including buying and selling it. So along with along with the immense opportunities that the the, the legal contraception afforded to women. Also, we also saw a libertarian defense of the sex industry. And it's really not, it's not a coincidence at all that the, the arrival of the pill, you know, less than a decade after the arrival of the pill, radical feminists were protesting against the, the proliferation of pornography 
by by the early 19th centuries there were there were demonstrations across the country over how how grotesque and degrading and pervasive pornography already was within a decade and which and, it, and this is forwardly downstream of the pill um I, I have a horrible feeling my airpods have just died can you still hear oh, me oh no can you hear me hello yeah well, one of okay um, yeah, i well, can still hear you let me let me go ahead and ask you this question because this is one of the the main premises of the book, which which does tie into what you were just saying there, which is you make this case that modern feminism increasingly benefits only a small class of professional women. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we can we can travel straight from the libertarian defense of the sex industry and and the the the, the benefits that accrued to bourgeois professional women. Um, to to see how that how that could unfold at scale. So on the one hand, on, on on the one hand, you have you have you have a new technological environment which effectively flattens the major difference between men and women, which is to say pregnancy risk. Um, and the and, and to, to, in in my reading in my reading of what what's happened since the nineteen sixties, this is an unimaginably enormous change that's ricocheted. It's been ricocheting down through the culture for the last half a century. Uh, the, you, the, this technology flattens the it flattens the the most salient difference between men and women, and in the process, it emancipates all of those all all of those ambitious women who now have the opportunity to do a thousand and one other things. Um, other than becoming mothers, should should they wish to, they, we, 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 women can plan. We can. I mean, I'm I'm obviously a beneficiary of all of this. You know, there are, it, it's it's difficult to imagine me ma- making the case against this kind of feminism on any kind of a national or international stage. In, say say seventy years ago, in my grandmother's time, it's it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in so many ways, I'm a beneficiary of the the world of particularly of knowledge work, which has opened up for. It, particularly for ambitious, educated bourgeois women, as a downstream of of the transformations this has brought, with the with, with the, the now widespread social and cultural flattening of sex differences, and with of the the now normalised expectation that it's it's morally wrong to to assume that there are any differences between men and women. It's now it's it's more or less it's more or less a, a faux pas in in elite. In cultural circles, to imply that there that there are any intrinsic differences between men and women, yeah, you know, I think there are that there are some circles where you'd be you'd just be you'd be considered straightforwardly immoral for for asserting that, even though even though it's manifestly true. You know, I mean, all you need is eyes and a functioning brain, let alone any one of the thousand and one psychology papers which also underline the fact that this 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 is the case. Um, so so on the one hand, you have all of these you have a, a huge number of professional women who've benefited from flattening sex differences and the the and the development of of knowledge work in, in which they can flourish on the other hand you have you have impoverished women at the other end of the scale who are subject to the same moral transformations but who still work in the material world so now they might find themselves materially physically impacted by work expectations which suggest that there are no there are no physical differences between them and men and and expectations that they should perform the same work to the same the same physically arduous work as men um, and and in fact you'll you'll the, there are circumstances where where women have been denied workplace protections because it, because to assert that they that they should receive those protections on the basis of their sex would be sex discrimination against their male colleagues um, and this is the, effectively if you apply in the material world a set of non-discrimination 
beliefs about men and women, which only really makes sense in the world of information work, then what you what you are effectively doing is accruing a huge amount of benefit to knowledge class women like you and me, um, yeah. at the detriment of the enormous detriment of a huge number of other women who who, is, who still perforce live and work largely in the in the physical and the material world. And I mean, th- and this obviously also has ramifications for women who are mothers, for women who are breastfeeding. Um, not to mention for the great many women whose bodies are now increasingly commodified um, in order in order to service whether it's the sex industry or the porn industry or indeed big big fertility and big surrogacy. You know the women, the younger the young girls who are rendered infertile after selling their eggs to fund to fund their college fees, or or the exploited women in in developing countries who's, yeah. who are pressured into renting out their uteruses in order to produce babies for for rich infertile couples in the West. I mean the list goes on, it, but but it's it's very there's a very clear stratification where a small number of women benefit immensely right at the top of the food chain and a great many more women pay the cost. Well, it even reminds me of what we see in some of maybe celebrities that we see in the United States. You see two Kardashian, um, two of the Kardashian daughters using surrogacy. Paris Hilton just came out and wasn't, she said it wasn't that she couldn't have kids, but she just didn't want to go through pregnancy. So she went through surrogacy and people have lots of thoughts on it, but there's no doubt it's become a market that if you're wealthy enough, you can purchase somebody to to be able to do that for you. So I, I think we're seeing firsthand that it's it's made its way into our common society. Um, real quick before you go, just if somebody picked up this book, would they leave with a solution? Or how should we think about this? Because it's complex. Um, you laid out some of the differences very well. What is the takeaway from this book? I have I have suggested I've, I have some thoughts on on thing on ways that we could push back against the, the the now radical project to flatten all physiological differences between men and women, which is leading us down the garden path with a gender ideology, which again is 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 beneficial to a small number and you know makes a whole lot of money for the pharma industry and 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 leaves leaves a trail of mutilated teenagers in its wake. Um, I. I I've I've suggested some some personal pathways that that younger men. Uh, the, the last section of my book was was addressed particularly at younger men and women. I mean, I'm I'm middle aged now. I kind of reached escape velocity ten years ago from from a lot of a lot of the mess that we see around us. I've been happily married for ten years, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of okay. But I, I look at people who are 10, 15 years younger than me and I see a lot of them very lost and very uncertain as to how, how to find any kind of a flourishing or beneficial or mutually or, or any, any form of any form of relation way of living between men and women, which is which is mutually beneficial rather than hostile and transactional and mutually exploitative. And this yeah. is this seems this is a pervasive complaint I hear now from from young men and women in their 20s. That the thing, things have become so so hostile and attenuated between the sexes that there's it, it feels it feels as though there's very little common ground left at all and there's the there is increasingly a, a a sense across both sexes that this is in some indefinable way downstream of feminism but it's difficult to figure out what the causality is and I've I've set out to to clarify that particularly by giving it the technological read and where I suggest that young men and women start is in, is is on on three tracks firstly to to rethink how we understand marriage and to treat marriage not as the 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 keep the capstone the 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 the, the self actualizing keystone to a life of individual achievement but to to approach it in a much more pragmatic way as the as the foundation for for life in common 
you know, including when your spouse annoys you and including and, and to take a very much more and to take a very much more pragmatic view of it. Not not yeah. as not as something which you discard if it stops being a vector for your self-actualization, but as a as a very as a very much more foundational and very much more difficult to abandon um, covenant um, as, as the precondition for life in common. And it's certainly, I, I think, if, if if the world carries on getting more chaotic, more unpredictable, and you know, as it is for many young people, less wealthy and abundant, um, it seems it seems straightforwardly just insane to me that, that any woman who would want to be a mother would imagine doing that on her own. Yeah, I think I think we need to we, we need to rethink how we're approaching the institution of marriage and to and to retool it for for an age which is likely to be characterized by more scarcity and, and unpredictability than perhaps the, the decades that have preceded us. So that's point one. Point two is I think I think we need to reclaim single sex spaces, but for both sexes, which is to say we need to we need to create we need to accept that making every space co-ed has had some has had some undercounted negative costs for men in ways which I think are having further negative downstream effects on the ability of older men to provide positive role models for younger men. Um, I mean, it, and it, it's, it's, it's abundantly clear to me um, that good men are not created by women. Good men are created by, by the example of other men. Hmm. And well, if we want, if we want to create a new space, if we want more good men, then we need to leave, we need to leave, step back, Women need to step back and leave them more space to form one another. Um, and I, I also think it's incoherent to to be demanding men's support in protecting single sex spaces for women, for example, in sports and prisons, unless we're also willing to contemplate the possibility that sometimes men might want to just hang out with other men just because they like it. And I think we, we we need to make a little bit of room, a little bit more room for that than than perhaps the the, the second wave women's women's movement did. Yeah, and, and this is this is not to say, you know, women should just disappear from public life altogether. But there's a huge amount of space between saying there should be no women in public life and saying we sometimes maybe we should just let men be. Yeah. And not not try and get involved in everything. And then point and number three is I think we need a feminist backlash against the pill. Yeah. You know, the the pro sex case against the pill. You know, if we want if if we want to take sex seriously again, we need to put the danger back in. And we need to put the we need to put what it's for. We need what it's for back into the picture. And when, to the extent that we're willing to do that, we'll be able to we'll, we'll be able to bring the seriousness, and and with that, all of every all, all the beauty and the intensity, and and the, frankly the eros, which has been attenuated by by big porn and by treating by treating it as a as a trivial leisure activity in a way which it just read self evidently isn't. And final question for you, just real quick, as this is a cliffhanger. Will people find out when they read this book who should do the dishes? Was that solved in this book as well? <laughs> Honestly, I'm not, not very interested in, in litigating who does what in any given household. <laughs> it I just think helps you think about it. Day, but, but, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, if you, if you take the marriage seriously, like, it, doesn't, it actually doesn't matter. Because it's, if, you, if you treat it as a covenant, as a sort of human-scale communism, um, which is the only scale of communism that actually yeah. makes any sense, in my opinion. Um, then it's just—it's all just the work, and yeah. it doesn't—it really—it actually doesn't matter. You know, you can—you can—you negotiate it amongst yourselves according to inclinations and who's who's doing what at any given time. Right. And you know, who, who does the dishes is—you know—it's—it's it's for every every family to negotiate amongst themselves. It's all just the work. Well, it's all very insightful. Again, I want our listeners to know the book is called Feminism Against Progress. It's coming out on April 25th. So please do pick it up, Mary Harrington. A pleasure to have you on She Thinks. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
And thank you for joining us. Before you go, IWF does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That is IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help, and we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at IWF, Thanks for watching.